Psychedologist. Hello, thank you for tuning in to The Psychedologist. This is the congested and uh, flu-ridden psychedologist. But I haven't released an episode in a while. I have been ill. And although I'm still sick, I really feel the need to get this one out there ASAP. So that is why I'm here today to talk to you about um, this conversation with Oriana Mayorga community organizer, part of the psychedelic movement, and uh, voice for people of color, for women particularly, and um, giving a really cool interpretation and needed dialogue to the Me Too movement. So I first met Oriana. I, we actually never met in person, oddly enough. Um, I was at an event in, Bro- in Brooklyn, I think it was in Brooklyn. Well, it was at the new school. Yeah, it was at the new school. I think that's in Manhattan, uh, led by the Brooklyn Psychedelic Society, organized by them. And the title was called Psychedelics, Race, and Therapy. Maybe not in that order. And there were three panelists, two men, one woman, all people of color. And they were going to talk about the, the, con- the topic and share personal experiences so I had gone to the panel to learn more and to record it and pu- publish it for the show. And I couldn't help but notice that uh, although the topics being discussed were really important and uh, I, I wish for that message to be out there more, it was quite focused on men. And I I found it strange. I wondered how anyone could not see... like like. I'm sure the other women in the audience were thinking the same thing. And if they weren't, then by hearing it, oh, it was all about men. I think they'd be like, oh, yeah, you know what it was? Because there really was no mention of women. And uh, if you're not familiar with intersectionality, that that is the idea that as a white woman, I can understand certain things about being a woman, um, but I can't fully comprehend the experience of a black woman or um, a woman who is Muslim, because there's there's this intersection of different identities that takes place in each individual. And um, you can read and try to learn more about the experience of people from other identities, but you, you can't just, based on your experience alone, know what it is like to be in their skin and walk through the world in that body. So I was going to ask a question about... Um, how this topic, psychedelics, race, and therapy, played in particularly for women. But during the question and answer, uh, a few questions were asked, and then this chant came from this one woman, Oriana, who, yeah, I had just, we had made eye contact and nodded because I, someone had texted me, oh, my friend Oriana is there. We like looked around, found each other's smile, and that was it. And Oriana is saying, these lines and there's people throughout the crowd who are like echoing her chant. I'm like, everyone was like, what? She says, I don't know, but I've been told Nick and Will, these are two of the presenters are pretty old. They've hurt women sexually. We won't stop until they leave. This was the chant. And after about two rounds, it was like, people were like, starting to see what was going on and all, all sorts of things happen. Like, I don't really like reliving that experience because it was quite hard. I mean, I had just learned a lot about microaggressions and different ways that microaggressions were carried out, including questioning the experience that a person comes forward with, their experience of like racism, say, uh, of others being racist against them. And these same microaggressions of questioning, of silencing, of trying to get security to come to take the protesters out. I saw these um, against the against the people chanting. Not only that, but pe- people were trying to touch Oriana and like, I don't know, like push her out. Like, and I went over and I was, I was like, don't touch her. Like, what? Why? Why is this like there's an issue being raised? And, and I know that I don't know this. I don't know the story. But isn't there some sort of story there? And the way the crowd responded was frightening. Um, there's a lot more to it than that, but 
that is one of the direct actions that is referred to in this episode when we talk about um, some of the activism and some of Oriana's personal experiences in the psychedelic community. Now, a lot of people, when I said that I wasn't against the direct action, that, that I thought that we should support survivors of sexual violence and we should have conversations about it and that this is really needed in the psychedelic community. When I when I wasn't like in opposition to the direct action, some like people couldn't believe it. Like how, you know, how could I support someone who didn't even let the men speak? And I was reminded of something that Catherine McLean said in a Facebook post of caution when giving the microphone to well-spoken, suave and well-respected, well-educated men who uh, will invariably be able to twist the story, whether they want to or not. Um, I think that it's important to consider the way that different voices are heard. And so I believe that if it had been just like a call out and they had had a chance to respond right in the moment, I don't know if the effect would have been as lasting as it was that the protesters literally chanted them out the door. Um, I understand that that was a traumatizing event and that through that event, a woman of color was silenced because the other presenter didn't get to finish the question and answer portion. And, uh, you know, I would have liked to be able to talk to her more. You know, I'm like not glad that the event was interrupted, but in a way I think that the message was important because that event was organized based on patriarchal principles that the content was patriarchal and, Um, The organizer was warned ahead of time that some of the panelists were problematic. Now, they've hurt women sexually. I just want to unpack this statement for a second. One of the objects of the protest posted a long and extensive history of um, what what was named as every interaction they had had with Oriana, including intimate details of their sexual intimacy. And that has, he has taken that down. But upon reading that, I couldn't help but find some elements of it kind of familiar to my own life. Like, oh, yeah, like uh, that has happened with me and other men, too. And recognizing that there is a power thing there that he, you know, in in trying to show that he was totally innocent, like just it, it was so obvious, like the dynamic of power must be taken into account in relationships, especially intimate ones, and especially in the psychedelic community when we're here talking about trauma, state altered states of consciousness, working with these medicines that allow us to go to other realms and to higher levels and lower levels of consciousness. Anyway, so they hurt women sexually, this statement. What if instead the chant had said, they have been douches to women sexually? Because I think most people could agree that have heard the story of what happened, which I don't want to tell here, but uh, you probably can just ask someone that was at the event or um, I just, I, I feel as though you can believe me on this. They were douches to women sexually. Now, would that render the protest irrelevant? So I'll leave you with this. The woman who started the Me Too movement, trying to find her quote here. She said something really smart. I've never had a person come to me and say, I want to take down this person. They come to me and say, I need help. This thing is killing me. It's weighing me down. It's sitting in the pit of my stomach. Tarana Burke is her name. I don't think that the Me Too movement is about taking people down, although I know that it can be used as a device to do that. And I, I think that devices, take, there, there are so many devices for taking people down. And it's unfortunate when we use something like this for that, because it makes people question every single survivor who comes forward and has a story. Victim blaming is real. Listen to the psychedelic patriarchy um, panel. It's on this podcast. It's also, you can find it online if you search for it. Uh, Male Supremacy and the Psychedelic Patriarchy is the name of that. (sighs) So I really wanted to talk to Oriana and I wrote about her action and the response to it in a piece for Symposia called uh, Intersectionality in the Psychedelic Movement, a Call for Conversations, something like that. And Oriana contacted me and called me in and she's like, I really don't appreciate the way that you wrote about my action, A, B, and C. We had an open conversation about it. I was, I was like open to her feedback and 
just like put down my judgments about like whether she was judging me wrong or something or like just like listened to her. And I found that everything she had to say made perfect sense. And I found that through listening to her, I could actually be a more effective ally, not just to her, but to all women, people of color, folks who are marginalized and to the male allies and the non-binary people and the babies and the kids. It's just like, if you are so stuck in your story and you're so stuck on being right that you don't want to listen, then you will never learn anything. How can you learn if you have to be right? So I hope you enjoy this conversation. We talk about her initial introduction to the psychedelic community and the realization that followed soon after that access would be an issue for marginalized people, access to psychedelics. She talks about the way that she brings a social justice lens to the psychedelic renaissance, specifically as it comes to racial justice and putting an end to sexual violence. We talk about the shadow side of the psychedelic movement, talk about consent and how there's basically a call to speak about this and learn what it means, have everyone learn what it means. Systems of power comes up and her experience of being, quote, blacklisted after speaking truth to power. We talk about the Me Too movement, the People of Color Psychedelic Coalition. We talk about calling in and calling out her horizontal power structures, shared resources, accountability. We talk about the weird cognitive dissonance of speaking up for marginalized and traumatized people, but then questioning survivors coming forward with a story uh, and how that how that cognitive dissonance can exist, that people say that they're for marginalized people, but then they don't listen to survivors and don't ask them what they need, but focus on the uh, innocence or the unfair treatment of the abusers instead. Irrelevant of the intent of the abusers, by the way, whether there was good or bad intent, we'll never know. But either way, we need to listen to survivors. That's my own piece. We talk about Christianity. She is Christian. Very cool, like radical things that she wants to do with that. And we talk about keeping each other accountable. So I'll leave you with a quote by Kimberly Crenshaw, who, as I mentioned, uh, comes up in the episode and coined the term intersectionality. She says, censorship is certainly not the answer to controversial material and is inconsistent with our most basic constitutional values. So I hope that you enjoy this episode, especially in the spirit of hearing from a person who has been censored and um, retaliated against for speaking her truth. And I'll see you on the other side. Thanks for listening to The Psychedologist. Oh, and before we start the episode, I wanted to make sure that you understood that this rec- this conversation was recorded right before the California Institute of Integral Studies Conference, which took place um, in the middle of August. So when we talk about the upcoming conference in this episode, we're referring to that conference. Thanks. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Oriana Mayorga, a conversation that's been a long time coming and so grateful that she could come to me to have this conversation. Thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So if anyone doesn't know who you are, what can you say to who you are and where you're coming from and what brought you to the psychedelic community and all that? Sure. Um, At the moment, I am a farmer in upstate New York, about an hour from the city And I am also a community ministries intern at my local United Methodist Church. Um, Prior to that, I was organizing for Citizen Action and for a couple of electoral campaigns in New York. Um, I'm trying to go to graduate school either this spring or next fall for Divinity um, and hopefully doing a social work back, you know, dual degree so I can become a licensed therapist. Um, and yeah, I've been a part of the psychedelic community since 2011. Um, it began when I read a book by Claudio Naranjo, who is still alive. I met him at psychedelic science about a year ago. Um, and I was blown away by his work and, uh, you know, subsequently met Rick at a maps dinner, I believe that year after horizons. Um, told him how excited I was about it. He um, said if I wanted to, I could write a forward for the book. They were going to republish it that year, and they did. Yeah, and so then I just like became super nerdy about the whole thing and volunteered at Horizons every year since then and um, actually focused in college on MDMA therapy stuff for research. Got my stuff published um, 
and presented a few conferences and just been um, part of the community ever since. Cool. And you've had a lot of participation in activism as well, right? Yeah. Um, yes. It's interesting. The The work that um, began was, or the work for me that I feel like uh, was very noticeable for me in the activist world, what happened after the election of 2016. So I was helping out with the New Sanctuary Coalition with undocumented friends who needed asylum help um, to working for a um, organization that Mount Sinai in New York City has called Savvy, Sexual Assault um, and Intimate Partner Violence Survivors, where I would help do trauma work once a month for about 16 to 20 hours. Um, and now looking back at it collectively, I'm like, oh, I've kind of done activism in all these like areas that um, I'm trying to help in the psychedelic community without even knowing. But my most of my activism comes from um, knocking on doors, politics, helping... Um, you know, our Dems become a little more progressive, which is difficult. <laughs> <laughs> An endless uphill battle, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And yeah, I, well, you kind of answered it already, but I wanted to ask what it's like coming from having that activist lens and then entering the psychedelic movement um, and being a woman of color and a survivor of sexual violence. Yeah, it's interesting because part of, so since 2011, I forget the exact year when, but like there were a few years, like the first three years that I was super into our community and attending as many local events as I could and um, meeting folks that, you know, had like-minded ideas. And then somewhere along the line, I, th I forget when it was, but I realized that there was going to be a serious problem with access for people that look like me. Um, and my friend Benoit and I, and I actually were talking, I think two years ago about like figuring out a way that we could organize people of color around these issues. And it was the first time that I had thought about it prior to that. I was just like, Oh, MDMA, um, and psilocybin, all these things are help, you know, help with trauma. Um, I had, I, I was missing the lens of this, the, the justice lens, right. Of the fact that, um, these medicines, it's a privilege to have access to these medicines in the first place. And that if, and when these medicines become legalized, not everyone's going to have them. And so it's actually been my activist lens now that has been shaping the work that I do. And it's also what has veered me away from just becoming a therapist. Um, as much as I want to, I think it's very important to be a, a person of color as a therapist um, in, the, in the field of therapy. I also feel like I want to do more macro level stuff. Um, and I can't let myself do micro work until there's like macro work. There's infrastructure set up so that people will have access. Um, so my psychedelic journey or in this community has like kind of shifted from like thinking that MDMA was like the best thing in the world and wanting everyone to, you know, ha wanting access to it, to realizing all the structures that are in place, you know, that will not let people like me have it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that MDMA, <laughs> It's kind of like the MDMA movement is sort of like being on MDMA in some ways. It's yeah. like, oh, it's so safe. Oh, it's so great. Oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> and then you come down and you have to integrate like that beautiful uh, union and, and like safety to like what's actually happening on the ground. And, and which like this was huge for me um, <clears throat> when considering bringing access to this to people of color that they are going to leave the therapy and, and emerge back into the same conditions in which they may have been traumatized in the first place, especially race-based trauma, sexual trauma. Totally. Yep. What a great way of putting it, that MDMA analogy. That's exactly what it's like. Yeah. I, um, I feel like it's been a weird journey to, um, like it, it almost feels like I don't really have a choice in, the space that I'm like carving out, like I, I don't know how to be um, um, someone who loves psychedelics or wants to advocate for legalization of drugs and these medicines um, without screaming about racial justice and um, you know the end the ending of sexual violence. Like I don't know how to operate um, if not in those confines, and I'm always kind of amazed by the people who do. It just seems like they're like there's a like you're missing something. Like, what are we fighting for? You know, we're not just fighting for everybody to have um, access to LSD, you know, at a rave. Like we're, we're fighting for something a lot deeper than that. At least that's how I feel. Mm. And, you know, for listeners who read Michael Pollan's book and um, 
get maps's newsletter and maybe that's like the depth of their um awareness of the movement like what can what do you have to say about the shadow side of of the psychedelic movement let's sure. say sure well at the recent um the recent panel that i was on with a few of my friends um in dc and in philly on dismantling the psychedelic patriarchy we actually brought up michael pollan's book because everyone i got like random texts from family friends you know, saying, are you, you know, not so excited about Michael's book? And uh, the analogy that I gave at the panel, which was a dear friend of mine who brought it to my attention, Alice Walker, who is known for The Color of Purple, she also wrote a great book on ayahuasca that nobody knows about, mm-hmm. that MAPS certainly doesn't have republished at their store being sold. <laughs> you know, we, there, there are these women and women of color um, that have been leading this work forever. And... Again, somehow the, the narrative goes back to these white men, white older men, right? That have the the resources, the means to do the work that they're doing um, and get that sp- and take up that space. Um, and so, forgive me, you were you were asking for the shadow side, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, um, I think it's really challenging for any community to have to like look inwards and say, you know what, shit, we have problematic people. Um, some of them are leading stuff. Some of them aren't, but we have them. And we need racial justice trainings. We need um, gender violence. We, we have all, like, we have to um, work on the stuff that we, that we lack or that we're not well-versed in. And it's, I think it's been really challenging for the psychedelic community to come to terms with that, even though it seems like some people are, um, are happy to have these discussions. They're uncomfortable. They're not sexy, mm-hmm. you know? They're scary. They're scary. Um, and consent you know talking about what does consent look like um is something that i don't think i've ever heard literally i've never heard a therapist talk about that at a conference why not we need we need to be talking about consent i almost i don't want to derail this at all but i wonder if it has something to do with our puritanical roots or like the the colonized culture of this area and our puritanical roots of not talking about sex still (laughs) but it's okay to talk about sex in the media and like yeah sexy sex but not the uh yeah, just some of the ways it leaves people open to being um, exploited and oppressed and traumatized that, that don't even know they were being traumatized. Totally. I, I personally have been through situations that I thought were totally like the way that things go. And mm-hmm. then later I realized that they were traumatizing me and that they had an impact on me. Absolutely. And I think that when we're looking uh, you know, at systems of power um, and people with power, just the tendency, I mean, the, the ability to abuse power is just like, it just is so real when you have a lot of it and when it goes unchecked and where there's no oversight, um, you know, from organizations to just individuals. And, um, that's another thing for looking at the structures that have led certain orgs or people to, you know, come in places of leadership. Um, when you start questioning and critiquing that, oh my goodness, the, the backfire, um, is real and the blacklisting is real. Um, and that's actually one of the things that I, you know, would say is a big part of the shadow side of this community of all communities is when you start speaking truth to power, when you start um, becoming somebody who consistently speaks openly um, out against injustice, you know, the repercussions sometimes aren't that great. It sounds like you're speaking a bit about what has gone on for you. Yeah, totally. Do you want to share? I'll share a little bit. Um, completely coincidental like while i was experiencing this in the psychedelic community for the first time in my life this year this also happened in my career (laughs) like my professional world um i was featured on national public radio speaking on this american life um for a piece happening you know regarding our congressional district up in cd19 um we somehow elected a um corporate Dem who doesn't care about Medicare for all, et cetera, et cetera, over, you know, several other progressive candidates that were um, viable options. And while this was happening, I was working for an organization where I was a community organizer and um, spoke up a lot about how wrong it was for us as an organization to endorse this candidate. And so at the same time that I was doing some work in the psychedelic community, my direct action back in April, um, this was happening in the, in my paid job life. Um, so I have experienced like the blacklisting and the pain, um, 
from from both sides of it and unfortunately at the same time which was so bad um but um yeah going back to you know speaking to my experience um both in the quote-unquote progressive political spheres um i have been banned from speaking at a rally um to not getting work where i live um to presently in the our psychedelic community being told by confidants and friends that there are people trying to do their their best to ensure that i never become a psychedelic therapist really painful things that i've heard um and why you know just because i'm speaking up i mean and if i wasn't speaking up about something that was true then why such a response and <clears throat> i wonder if it's been considered the what would be the consequence of you not speaking up about what you had gone through? I know that um, your direct action roused uncomfortable feelings of a spectrum of feelings for people. Um, apologize for the lawnmower. <laughs> We're in grass country, like actual grass, not weed country. I wish. Um, but, but yeah, like it's, it's interesting when you start speaking up, how much backlash you get and then yet there's also people going oh thank you so much you know quietly of course like I'm so glad you're talking about this like I asked a question at the Detroit Psychedelic Conference about um, let's see what was it was a women's panel and I said you know what oh the the question was um, uh, should women take the lead in the psychedelic movement (laughs) and so I asked a question about sexual violence against women and you know because it doesn't usually come up and uh, actually, thanks to like you and Catherine and others, that's much more on my radar now. And uh, nothing, the, the responses were, were cool. They were good. Um, but then after it, it was like the quiet interactions I had with people going up and saying like, wow, I, that was really bold of you to ask. Yeah. That's really important. Like that was telling it on its own. There seems to be like a whisper network, right? Mm. Um, yeah. And... That's it's it's interesting. People are like really uncomfortable when you put hard questions in front of them, um, and then there's like this, this you know, s- many thank yous after. Actually, something that um, I wanted to share. Um, I'm actually coming out more publicly about this. Um, I shared it in DC and in Philly, but we were not able to get the videos uploaded on social media yet. But you know, when you mentioned how my direct action made some people uncomfortable. One of the things that I'm starting to come out publicly about, which is going to be very interesting, I think, is the fact that after Horizons made that statement, um, you know, saying that they had removed Neil from their board because of sexual misconduct allegations, um, people were applauding Horizons, right? They were really happy that Horizons went about it, the procedural um, you know, policy-driven way of like collecting stories and going through a law firm and really doing their due diligence to make sure that they're not just false accusations, but that they did their job well. And my direct action, <laughs> I got people calling me, texting me, saying real mean thing. People that I thought were friends. Um, I sound angry. I sound divisive. Um, and nobody except for a few people know that I am the same person that led the Horizons effort. I'm the exact same person, except that one was more comfortable and sexy and the other one was more in your face and uncomfortable right and it's amazing what we find to be okay and what we find to be not okay it's the same person doing the same work it's just different tactics right um and so that's something that's been really hard to grapple with i know my partner knows a few of my closest confidants know that i did that work with horizons and that i did the direct action but a lot of people don't Um, so being praised for something and being hated for another thing, that's the exact same result has been like mind blowing. And I don't remember who, but someone asked me, well, why would she make such a big thing in front of everyone, you know, at, and in that situation and then not let the men talk. And I think it was Catherine who said, beware of handing over the mic to well-spoken, smooth men in power who know how to craft words. And, um, I, wow, that spoke such true volumes because, uh, and even in the aftermath following it, there was a lot of smooth talk, you know, trying to happen to, to twist the story and, um, to dominate the narr- narrative. Mm. Yeah. Also, you know, it's interesting that Catherine said that cause it's also for me, um, like the time's up, right? Like these men had had opportunities to speak their truth to me, um, and to the women that they hurt, like 
for like weeks, you know, this is not, this is not new on their radar. Right. Um, and so the time was not then for them to sit down and us hold hands and light a candle and have a conversation. Like the, the time for them to have been remorseful for what they had done to apologize. It could have been privately. It could have been through a text. It could have been through an email was before then. Um, it's, we can't let people that, that, um, perpetrate violence to get to dictate the terms of when and where it's okay to have a conversation about mediation. And I did my due diligence. I contacted the organizers, the Brooklyn Psychedelic Society, prior to my direct action. I said, hey, in fact, I think I disclosed too much. I gave them all the reasons why I thought it would be a problem to have these men lead the panel. Um, and I was told, you know, don't call me for gossip and I sound like a scorned woman and there's a reason why I wasn't invited to speak here and it's because I sound like a scorned person. And so, like, you know, when you contact organizers, I think, when you inform people there's something wrong going on, and they choose to move forward, I don't know what is expected, you know? Um, yeah. How does this relate to the Me Too movement? Well, the Me Too movement, um, which we know has become sort of a national sensation last October um, because Alyssa Milano, you know, she got that hashtag moving on social media. It was actually, um, it began in 2006 um, by Tarana Burke, and she's a woman of color, a com- you know, community organizer and a civil rights lawyer from the Bronx. And um, my understanding is the hashtag was used to really show the magnitude of this problem, right? Sexual violence as an umbrella, it goes from harassment to whatever a person may perceive as the most you know, egregious form of violence. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people just think of it as rape. I got a lot of people saying, well, if these guys didn't rape anybody, <laughs> you know, mm. um, was it violent, which is amazing. And did those guys rape anybody? Um, no, they did not. Um, that I know of, at least. Um, and yeah, it's interesting that the emphasis, though, is on rape, right, as the only form of violence that's egregious. But mm. um, the Me Too movement has been, you know, happening for a long time. <laughs> and um, and so the psychedelic community is just now, I think, maybe maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe the psychedelic community has been working on these issues. It's not that I'm, not anything that I've heard of, but it seems to be that now we are like, oh, these are people who've been abusing their power. Um, and they've hurt these women. They've given them um, drugs of their consent. Or they've actually publicly stated that um, they never... You know, they, they were never sexually violent to anybody. They just gave drugs as a means of seduction. I mean, like, we're hearing really interesting things. Wasn't that um, Daniel Pinchbeck? Yeah. Wow. I mean, well, I, and he came out about doing that. Right. And it's, it's another thing, right? Is it okay then? I mean, I, I'm so blown away. You know, like, is Neil putting a status that says hashtag, you know, me too, hashtag I'm to blame? Is that sufficient to... I mean, I, I, I don't know. Mm. Um, but it's been really interesting watching everybody else make those decisions. And I've made this analogy a couple of times to people. This experience, my direct action, to me, really brought up um, the experience of being a sexual assault survivor. In that this awful thing happens to you. You tell people. And you have the people who immediately stand with you, who take you to the hospital, who make sure that you have all the things you need to be safe the therapy, to support the network. Then you have the ones that are a little ambivalent and kind of think, well, you shouldn't have had that many drinks or that skirt was really tight and you didn't know the guy. And then you have the people all the way (laughs) to the right um, or on the outside saying, you know, well, you shouldn't have worn that skirt. You shouldn't have gone to that party. I mean, you brought it upon yourself. There's a spectrum, right, of, of victim blaming. And I see this in the work that I'm doing, and I'm sure a lot of organizers who are doing Me Too work experience this too. You have your friends who will go with you and chant. You'll have your allies who will help you take off violent people from touching you at the, at the actions. And then you'll have the people that you thought were definitely going to be understanding of the stuff that you're trying to do that are questioning your motives. Yeah. Mm, okay, I'm glad that we've talked about Me Too. Can you go into your work with people of color in the psychedelic space a bit? Sure. Um, like I said in the beginning, my friend Benoit and I were thinking about two years ago how we could organize people of color in this community who often don't feel safe saying that they use um, drugs, you know, for fear of, like, incarceration mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and other very real things. And... Um, we started talking about it with our own friends 
And then um, it turns out, actually, that uh, we have a working group now that talks once a month to one another. Um, we don't have a name yet. We're trying to, like, come up with it. But um, we are trying to connect once a month about what projects we're all working on, right? So this kind of, like, loose thing exists across the nation because we're everywhere. Um but I remember like going to Horizons last year and being like, okay, there's another person that looks like me and another person. How exciting. Cause there's not many of us in these spaces, um, but there are few of us. And um, what's been really fun about actually organizing together is I'm noticing there are a lot more projects than I knew that are happening that need support. Um, Ife Tayo is working on a really cool um, people of color conference. Hopefully it'll happen this year. Um, my friend Paula Khan is the founder of Cosmos Ancestrales, um, which is on its way to becoming a nonprofit. And um, we actually had Paula on the show translating for Inti. And we talked about Maria Sabina and Ife helped introduce that. So some of the listeners might know this episode. <laughs> yep. Um, they're both incredible. And so there are people that are doing projects that we know about, about you know, um, and then there's the, like the shadow dark side, right, of anything. Um, where there are people of color in, one could say, you know, um, great positions of power in sort of really credible organizations that I don't think, I think if I ask them, and I'm actually planning on it, how many people they've helped, how many people of color they've helped get employment, I don't think they could tell me many. Um, and we have that everywhere. They're just called gatekeepers, right? People that have the connections and the power. And just for some reason, whether intentionally or not, <laughs> don't connect other marginalized people to these networks. Mm. And that has been the thing that I am like really frustrated about um, and want to speak more up like up about. I also like would like to give a fellow woman or a person of color the chance to explain themselves before I like call them out on being a gatekeeper. So that's the work is on me to do that too, is to make sure that I have those one-on-ones. But it's something that I really, really hurts me. Um, I want to make sure that I'm connecting every friend of mine to the person that they need to talk to so they can advance themselves in some way or another. And I don't see that from everybody. And people of color should do that, but everyone should do that. Totally. I, I want to see more movement to, to calling in our allies with privilege to using their privilege to make this movement more diverse and, and therefore more resilient. And I wonder if like, and that's a good point, right? Like the whole, there's always that controversy about the call in and call out. I've had I've had sit downs though in the past with people who um, have a little bit of power and who are let's just say people of color and I've said hey you know you promised me one thing and then you didn't do it and that hurt me I didn't you know I didn't feel valued and I was told that it never happened again and then it happens again so the question becomes you know how much can we how many times do we call in people you know um, and then where does that change to calling out. Um, and at the same time though I don't want to default into the calling out thing I have people thinking that I'm going to interrupt everything. And I don't think anyone understands <laughs> that it's actually emotionally exhausting and I do not want to interrupt everything. Mm -hmm. I kind of also just want to go to these things. Um, but yeah, if you're going to be on the side of harming people, then I'm definitely coming after you. Well, yeah, I mean, you called me in. That was kind of the start <laughs> of us. <laughs> yeah. This conversation. It was great. Yeah. I was really happy actually to that we had that conversation, but then that I also could report back to my friends of what happened, right? Like here is somebody who wrote this article that was needed. And I felt like certain things weren't, you know, put in the best way, but she spoke to me about it. She heard me out. We had a conversation. Not only is she going to fix it, I'm now finally given a platform where I can speak something that I haven't had in months, you know? Um, so it was a really, I was really happy that we had that. And it's a good example that people can be good allies. Yeah, um, it's, <clears throat> I think that a lot of us want to do good. You know, we, we want to feel like we're doing good already. And so to have it raised to your awareness that maybe you're not doing so good, there's so many, there's just a range of responses possible. And I've been defensive enough times in my life to learn that that doesn't really serve me or anyone else. And um, you, you made it easy because it wasn't hard to listen to what you had to say. You're like very respectful and, um, really like raised to me what the concerns were. And I loved the way that we worked through it and the relationship that we've built from it. Totally. And I, you know, I have been, I've had a hard conversation with one of my friends about 
something that I said on or something that I said on Facebook to somebody else, you know, that came across as anti-black. And I had to explain myself, you know, I had to have a conversation that wasn't enjoyable. I did not like being um and I was called in, okay? I wasn't even called out and I didn't like it. Mm. Um and it's hard I think sometimes to 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 be we're like instinctually defensive. Um it happens to everybody, you know? And I guess maybe that's some of my fear in talking to these gatekeepers, you know, <laughs> are they going to be instinctually defensive or are they going to be able to in that moment realize, no, she's coming to me um, because she cares and because there's another alternative, you know? <clears throat> it's, it's what makes this such an interesting time to be alive and be in this movement, I feel, is the way that psychedelics psychedelics force us to face our fears and the psychedelic movement brings up so much fear not just fear of our personal stuff but like these these larger fears of i don't even know um i almost feel like fears of like one of my, my biggest fears is that like one day my grandchildren won't be able to say that they're proud that their grandmother helped these big organizations because they actually ended up being complicit with fascists. And, you know, I want my, my, like my, my, my offspring one day to be proud of the work that I've done, the people that I've partnered with, and they're not going to be if it actually was, um, you know, if it was work being done with people that harm other people. Um, and so I think one of the fears in this community too, is that like, we're going down this path of like, helping the right or helping people that, you know, actually continuously hurt marginalized communities. And I don't want to be a part of that. And people who are hurting marginalized communities are hurting as well. Right. Yeah. And that's true too. Um, yeah. Actually thinking about like the future, right. And what do I see for us? I've been talking to some folks who are teaching me a lot more about, um, like horizontal structures mm. of power <laughs> and things that I've never thought about in, in actual depth. And I'm struggling with, do I want to be somebody who has their own Facebook page and has their own nonprofit and suddenly I'm beholden to donors, even though I'm doing good work because mm. I'm helping my friends in their projects? Or do I want to be someone that has no institutional affiliations that can be a free agent, you know, and can speak up and out about things and there's pros and cons to both, right? On one hand, if you choose to not have a, an organization that you're tied to, um, I feel like people won't listen as much. People really took the allegations against Neil seriously because an organization backed that. Yeah. If you're out there screaming by yourself, it's a little harder. Mm. But the pros of having a nonprofit um, is that you can actually fund the pro projects of your friends. I could say, here, here, Leah, you know, like take this amount of money and please you know, continue to do the beautiful work that you're doing. I can actually help my friends. Um, I've been weighing those two things out. I don't know if I want to be somebody with a really egotistical email listserv, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I don't know if that's what I want, you know? Um, also, by the way, email listservs are just not safe. Everything is screenshot and sent to each other. I love when people say, please don't forward this. Um, you shouldn't even be asking that, <laughs> mm. you know? But it's something I've been thinking about is like, do I want to be somebody who starts my own thing um, and then I'm beholden to donors and things like that? Or am I somebody that wants to sort of just do my own thing, farm, go to divinity school, become a pastor and not have to deal with anyone else's stuff? Yeah, people are really scared of the A word. I know. See, I won't even say it. <laughs> but you know what? I was, I'm actually not saying it on purpose because... Um, Anarchy. <laughs> someone recently said this to me, and it's true. People are just so afraid of it. It brings up chaos. It brings up all these things that it's better for us to talk in terms of what it means. Horizontal power structures. Mm -hmm. You know, no institutions, which sucks for me because I want to get married and I like the institution. <laughs> but like... <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, you can make your own ceremony of love. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm in this Facebook group called Anarcho Communism 101. And whoa, some shit that I'm learning. <laughs> oh my God, I'm getting slapped in the face all the time. <laughs> and, and like one thing that was really, I, I hope this doesn't diverge. I think it relates. One thing that was really shocking at first was like they like allowed me in, and then they're like, you're expected to give praxis like give help to people in this group and i'm like okay 
And so like people in the group post, I need money for my mortgage. I need this. I'm a disabled person of color. They like list whatever. And it's like to ask for help, you have to be like A, B or C, you know, some things. And there's all these rules. Like when you get the help, you have to like upload the receipts of it and whatnot. Wow. And uh, I, I was, I was, I felt uncomfortable for a minute. Like, okay. Like <laughs> they, they assume that I like, I have this like white face and that I have money to give. Then I was just kind of like, okay, well, well, and then I, I like do help out like people already. So I'm like, okay, I do praxis and then like help someone out in the group. I'm like, all right, this feels really good. Like this Ooh. actually makes a lot of sense. And the, the point of it was like, I'm not giving someone my money. It's mm. not my money. I didn't, I, I don't own it. It's like water. It's not my water. It's, it comes through us. And <clears throat> me having more of it and giving it out to someone else is just like the, it's just levels of power and energy being like um, in waves through, through humanity. So cool. What a cool way of thinking about shared resources. Yeah. And also accountability. Mm. Um, and, Going back to what you were saying about what are like the fears in the psychedelic community may have, you know, I think that as we're seeing with the upcoming conference this weekend and the conversations around capitalism and being beholden to certain stakeholders, it's really challenging to keep people and organizations accountable. I have so many friends that work for these organizations that I don't want to see be hurt. Um, their jobs depend, their livelihood depends on, you know, the, I'm assuming the well-being of an organization, right? Um, but a lot of my friends that work for these places are upset, you know, they're leaking information by the way, you know, like they're the ones telling us the stuff that's going on on the inside. They're frustrated. Um, and keeping, I think people and organizations accountable is where we're seeing this sort of sp spike of, um, stress and anxiety. And, you know, I think people have asked me, well, you know, what do you do? Because we all make mistakes and we all have our shadow sides, like try not to harm people try to be tr as transparent as possible. You know, if you get called in and or called out, learn from it if you can. Um, listen to the person who's calling in or calling out. Listen to the people who are saying that they've been harmed. Totally, especially, and especially if we are people who want to say that we believe survivors and we have an expertise in trauma. Oh my goodness. I'm not saying, you know, blindly listen to every survivor either. I, I had a lawyer friend of mine recently talk to me about that, but I mean, it does mean lend an ear, you know? Um, and in organizing, we learn like you assume best intent, you assume best intent and you are careful what you say because you never want to have the reputation of speaking poorly of other people, but you do want to have the reputation of speaking truth. And so if I tell you that someone has bad hair is really different than me telling you, um, that my experience with them was this, this, and that, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's a fine line, you know, when, what is gossip? What is you know, sharing your truth and your experience. But um, I, I've been really sad to see a lot of people who claim to be um, speaking up for marginalized communities, but then don't believe or listen to survivors. Weird cognitive dissonance. It is weird. <clears throat> someone was explaining intersectionality to someone the other day, and I just loved the way that they said it. It was that... Um, you know, uh, so-and-so's experience as a black person isn't the same as so-and-so's experience as a black woman. And so-and-so's experience as a woman isn't the same as someone else's who is like a white woman. So it's like, just because we're both women doesn't mean that my experiences are the same as yours because we present differently to the world. And just like uh, the need to recognize all of the different intersecting identities that influence um, the way that we're received by the world and the benefits that we get and the benefits that we don't get and the, the like extra stuff we have to face up to. Totally. In fact, now that you just said that, it reminded me of um, your article. And I remember, you know, I, I, I know that you spoke about intersectionality, but I don't know if Kimberly Crenshaw was, was cited, right? And she was the black feminist, the, you know, the one who coined the term. And I just started speaking about intersectionality um, on these panels and all the different, intersects of oppression, right? And I think what you just said is true. A black woman's experience of oppression is, um, rather a white woman's experience of oppression is never gonna be the same as a person of color. Yeah. I think also becoming friends with and being in love with somebody in, in the past, um, non-binary um, gender has been really important and vital in my understanding of 
um, justice work mm. and people who are often um, not seen, not heard in these spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I <laughs> I loved the Detroit Psychedelic Conference. It was just so great. And, and I noticed some, I don't want to call it transphobic, but I would call it trans unaware for sure. And And there's just probably a really thin line between where we're unaware and where we're phobic and toxic and oppressive to to people. Um, I hope, you know, with the, with the way that psychedelics seem to open hearts and minds that people can let down their, these boundaries of thinking that like th- people are one way or another way and that it's wrong or right and, mm. and just openness to all the different expressions of being human. And, and the way that like, I don't know why this is coming up now, but like religious texts that were written a long time ago, mm-hmm. you know, they say one thing and there, there are many ways to interpret that. It doesn't mean that being a person a certain way is wrong, I don't think, especially if it doesn't hurt other people. Totally. It's so interesting that you mentioned that because I like don't disclose right away, although now I'm trying to become like more comfortable with this like part of my identity, but I usually wait a little bit until I disclose um, that I'm like this like radical Christian because... <laughs> Of all the reasons why we don't say the A word, um, mm. right? Because we know that Christianity, like most religion, it's just a form of oppression um, to oppress people. And um, I want people to to know that I'm a Christian after they've gotten to know me. That'd be the last thing that I say with my mouth or the first thing that you encounter with my being. And to think that, you know, so much doctrine in scripture has been used to um, further keep us apart from another is so saddening, especially for me. Cause I'm like really dorky and I love, love reading the old Testament and the new Testament. I like love scripture. And what do you love about it? I don't know. I'm like, <laughs> I, I, I think it's so beautiful. I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. I like love, um, memorizing like the genealogy of like the, the first, you know, supposed people, um, I love the fact that these parables are used to like talk about God's work. And I feel like more and more, I think it's partially in part to the church that I belong to in the Bronx, but I am just like, wow, Christ was this like, you know, socialist community organizer is Mm. actually what he was. And like sin is simply just capitalism. It's Mm. just like the hoarding of resources. Mm. Um, And of course it's such like a radical white statement that a lot of like Christians would be horrified because you know sin is no sin is being gay sin is having a sex before marriage um sin is not being modest enough and um i'm trying and this is my hope for divinity school is to like unpack that and sit and talk to other people who feel the same way that i do um so that people don't mistaken don't mistake um doctrine for being the end all be all of how do you how you treat your neighbor you know how you love your sister and your brother I had a guest on the show just a few episodes ago, Andrew Jasko. Hmm. He's a former Pentecostal minister, and now he helps people leave like fundamentalist religion and rediscover themselves. Cool. Yeah, I actually think you know, even though like you're t- you're talking about your Christian identity and how it's central to you, I feel like you guys would have a lot of like <laughs> meeting points. Honestly, totally, super cool. And like the first time I met him, he was wearing these like super tight um, psychedelic bell bottoms and <laughs> just like. Telling me about the sex positive work he's doing, and then, wow, yeah, he he's studying at CIIS to be a therapist, mm. and yeah, he, he um, psychedelics helped him come out of you know this oppressive system and and rediscover like defining his own values. So cool, yeah, m- many of which are present in in scripture, you know, in in Islam. Yeah, so so interesting. Yeah, um, there are. I think, I hope, I hope, I don't know if it's true. I'm hoping that there's a lot of us out there that are like um, believers in God or whatever and um, want people to be liberated and not further oppressed and marginalized, um, especially by the the texts that like have formed our religion, right? I'd be super down with taking down fundamentalists (laughs) Um, and and still working towards becoming an ordained, um, you know, minister or pastor. Or we'll just take them on a retreat for some candy flipping yeah. and a little bit of naked swimming. <laughs> you know, now that you mentioned CIIS, um, one one of the things I was thinking about that's really sitting in my heart is considering that um, we know that there's a really important conference happening around these issues that we're talking about. Um, and also going back to the 
the point I made about, you know, what's the future like for me? Do I want to be part of an organization? Do I want to build one? Do I not want to do that? Do I want to be like this free renegade? Um, You're already a renegade. <laughs> renegade, yeah. Um, I think about, you know, accountability and people in power and blacklisting and all the things that activists go through sometimes when they're speaking truth to power. How do we... It's really hard, you know, like the conference that's happening this weekend is I think is really important. The topics that are being discussed are super important. And um, there are far more women speakers on this panel than totally. Not a lot of people of color, which is I want to, you know, know actually. Thank you. And people should actually really pay attention to the organizers who organize this and why there aren't that many people of color. But it's an important conference. The topics are important that are happening. And it's really hard for me to like want to uplift the work that's gonna be done. And a lot of my SSDP friends are going and, and moderating, um, but also know that, you know, I was uninvited from speaking at this panel, from having my own panel, um, because of political stuff, right? Because of other relationships that are intermingled, um, because I didn't apologize to certain people for, this, for the things that I was doing and saying around the time of my action. And I, I fear that that's what a lot of my life is going to look like for the next couple of years is struggling with, I want to uplift the, the important work that's being done, but I, I don't know how and if I can when the people leading the work are problematic. Like the direct action, that was such a freaking cool topic. Race and psychedelics, I mean, of course, even I liked it without knowing who was going to go speak. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we... Yeah, how do we have these these things happen, but ensure that we have the right people on them? And I feel like that's our job. We have to keep each other accountable. So from all of this, what do you want the listeners to take home? Yeah. Um, so there's like the me stuff and there's like the bigger stuff. So the me stuff is I want to be very clear with everyone here that the intention behind my my public action, my direct action, rather, um, and the work being done with dismantling the the psychedelic patriarchy, it's about public awareness for me. <laughs> I'm really hoping that this that me speaking with my friends and my comrades is going to um, continue this public awareness campaign, multiple campaigns. I'm also hoping that we are inspiring people to take action. Um, and so I would love listeners to take that away from knowing where my where my heart is and why I'm doing the work that I'm doing. And then the bigger picture, I think, is it's really simple. Like, I'm trying to ensure justice in these spaces. Um, and that looks like many different things to many different people. I invite and welcome any um, perspective on what, you know, social justice looks like in the psychedelic community. But come on board. Like, let's help each other help me understand your perspective i'll help you understand mine let's see if we can work together and collaborate together um i am working on a website um i have to wait until i talk to two more people so i can before i share the name of it but um i just wanted to be a website where people can say hey these are a bunch of like radically cool projects happening by women by people of color um by otherwise marginalized people and if you want to do it with us join us if you want to have a project up there and it fits the criteria of like justice work you're in um i haven't been in a place to like actually build and i finally am now so i would like to create that um so that we have a way of networking together because one of the things that we've been discovering us activists is that we kind of have this like whisper network amongst each other um and i wish there was some way that we could have something intentional like that also a little more public so that more people could connect with us. Totally. And how can I help you? How can someone listening who wants to help be of yeah. service? Um, well, you've helped me so much with this. So thank you so much, Leah. Seriously. It's really cool. Um, I think that, and you can continue to by, you know, if, if you're interested in um, having my other friends who are going to be on this site um, and their work and hopefully your work, um, you know, have them have, let's share each other's platforms, you know, um, but for everybody else who's listening, I have a email address that I owe people an apology. <laughs> they sent me a few emails and I hadn't, I wasn't in the space to respond, but I have a, um, email address called POC psychedelic defense network at gmail.com. Um, and then I have my, my private email. And actually, if you want the fastest response, um, I would love for you to download this thing called Proton Mail. Mm. You can find me there at oriana.mayorga at protonmail.com. Um, 
There's no safety around screenshots. People can screenshot your, your things, but um, at least with ProtonMail, you can uh, self-destruct an email with a time frame. So if anyone wants to reach me out there, feel free to. Thank you for coming on the show and for sharing your story. <clears throat> Thank and you. Thank you for being <laughs> so brave. Thank you so much. I really um, am happy to be here and I'm happy to connect with anyone that wants to talk further. Cool. The Psychologist is Consciousness Positive Radio. Find us everywhere podcasts are hosted. For more information, visit us on Facebook or online at thepsychologist.com. Thank you.